everyone. Welcome back to JCM's Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you again for tuning into our series, Israel's Anointing. We are trying to bring you biblical insight into God's heart and purpose for Israel. And today is episode five, The Awaited Messiahs, part two, and Abraham's Wives. Now, before we continue the story of Abraham later in this episode, let's visit something I brought up in episode two, which was the three messiahs, or saviors, that the three monotheistic religions or beliefs in the world are waiting for. And let's take a closer look at the signs that usher this person in. Now, for Christians, we're watching for a number of signs, so I'm only going to mention a few in particular. From Matthew 24, we are looking at wars and rumors of wars, or nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And Jesus says that these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. It is just the beginning of sorrows. And then as time marches on, we discover that it says that many people will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Lawlessness will abound, false prophets will rise up, and the love of many will grow cold. And then there's a falling away from biblical truth and faith, which is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, upon which the man of sin, the Antichrist, will be revealed. But Jesus says in Matthew 24 that he who endures to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. Now, there are definitely a lot more signs, but you get the idea. And after his return, he will then recreate paradise as it was intended, with a new earth and a new Jerusalem from where he will reign. For Jews, they are watching for Elijah to come to herald the coming Mashiach, the Messiah. They are also watching for that climactic war of Gog and Magog, as written by their prophet Ezekiel. They are also watching for the ingathering of the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth to come and live in the land of Israel. Their Messiah is expected to be a person who will be a direct descendant of the biblical King David who will then usher in a time of perfect peace, so much so that it's quoted in their books that the wolf and the lamb will coexist together. Now, according to their teachings, the world will only exist for 6,000 years, which is the source of the notion that the Messiah will come no later than the Jewish year 6,000. Now, considering that the time period from Genesis 1 until today is calculated by scholars to be right around 6,000 years, they believe his arrival is imminent. And then we have the followers of Islam, who not only follow the Quran, but they also obey what's called the Hadith, which is a collection of traditions containing the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, which constitute the major source of guidance for Muslims apart from the Quran. Now, the Hadith describes the signs that will usher in the Mahdi, their savior, with a general but very important sign being that he will come at a time when there is great conflict, intense disputes, and violent deaths. Therefore, to hasten the Mahdi, the world must be engulfed in chaos and carnage. Now, both Sunni and Shia Muslims believe that we are living in the end of days, as predicted in their ancient prophecies. 
Both believe that any moment now, the Mahdi will be revealed on earth with the goal that he will establish his global Islamic kingdom and impose Sharia law throughout the earth. In addition, both Sunni and Shia Muslims do believe in Jesus and that he will return. However, what they fail to mention is that Jesus will not return as the Savior or the Son of God, but as a lieutenant to the Mahdi, and that he will force non-Muslims to convert or die. Now, while some Muslims believe that most of the non-Muslims of the world will convert to Islam peaceably during the reign of the Mahdi, most traditions picture the non-Muslim world coming to Islam as a result of being conquered by the Mahdi. And so to accomplish the mission of conquering the world, Muslim scholars teach that Muslims, although they should generally be truthful, they have permission to lie in order to smooth over differences to gain the upper hand over an enemy. And there are several forms of lying that are permitted in the faith under certain circumstances, the best known being what's called takiyya. The circumstances that would allow takiyya are those that advance the cause of Islam, done by gaining the trust of non-Muslims in order to draw out their vulnerability and defeat them. And today, they consider the two key oppressors in the battle to establish the Mahdi's kingdom as America and Israel. So these are the signs that each group is waiting for. Not all Muslims want violence to engulf the earth, and not all Christians agree on the way eschatology will play out. Either way, we are all on standby as events unfold. In the meantime, don't take my word for it. Go do some digging yourself. So with that said, let's continue now the story of Abraham to figure out how we got to a place where these three major streams of belief came to such different conclusions. Now, as we mentioned in the last episode, Abram is now living under a generational blessing from Noah, a God-given blessing in Genesis chapter 12, and a priestly blessing from Melchizedek which has now covered him not only in divine favor, but power, the power of God that is propelling his purposes forward. Now, after the priestly blessing of Melchizedek, Genesis 15 opens up with Abram experiencing a vision from God. And in this vision, Abram is promised an heir, an heir that will bring forth a family of descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And in that moment, Scripture says, Abram believed. He believed what God was showing him, and his faith in that moment was accounted to him as righteousness. So the Lord again makes him another land promise. In Genesis fifteen seven, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And then Abram asks a question that maybe we might ask if we were in that situation. How shall I know that I will inherit it? Well, following that question, Scripture relays unique events that God ignites in order to cut a covenant with Abram, which will involve the shedding of blood of innocent animals. Because in God's economy, innocent blood is the currency. 
as we see in the future through Jesus Christ. So God cuts a covenant with Abram in order to seal in eternity the promise he is making with him. Now, when most of us think of covenants, we think of contracts, don't we? A legally binding agreement between two parties. Say we want to purchase a house or a car or we're trying to close a business deal. But covenants in the Bible are more than a contract. They are about people. Marriage is the most familiar one in our culture. And when God makes a covenant, it means he is calling people into a relationship of love and loyalty. It's the glue that binds the promise to the fulfillment. And covenants made by God are not broken like we do with contracts today. There are key covenants in your Bible. You have the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and the new covenant. And each covenant is important. For example, the Davidic covenant promises an eternal throne and reign of a future eternal king from the line of David, which Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of. He comes from the line of David and is our eternal king of kings in the kingdom age to come. So God cuts this covenant and then tells Abram what he is giving him in Genesis 15 verses 18 to 21. He says, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now let me break this down. In this verse, we are talking about a landmass that includes parts of Ham's territory from the last episode, which is the territory from the Nile River and northeast Egypt and along the northeastern coast of northern Africa to include the land of Israel. And then there's parts of Jepheth's territory of southeastern Turkey and then Shem's territory of Saudi Arabia, the whole top half, and Syria and Iraq all the way to the Euphrates River. So the little area of Israel known to us today, the size of New Jersey, is but a shadow of what it's supposed to be in God's covenant. Notice how he includes the territory of Ham. Canaan, from our last episode. Canaan, who will be a servant to Shem. And notice how he includes a piece of Jepheth's large territory. Jepheth, who will dwell in the tents of Shem. Meaning, Shem will be a place of refuge and worship because it's a people that call on the name of the Lord, the one true God. See, the choice of Abram, soon to be Abraham, soon to be Israel, as a people and later as a nation, was a vehicle in and through which Christ Jesus would accomplish God's original plan to crush Satan through the seed of the woman of Eve, a seed which is now moving through the family line of Abram. And as the seed moves through, 
we are introduced to Abram's wives. His first wife, Sarah, also from Chaldea, Babylon, Shem's territory, what we know as modern-day Iraq, she was barren. And yet it was through her that the seed to move the promise forward was supposed to come. His second wife, Sarah's bondservant, Hagar, an Egyptian whom Sarah most likely brought back with her after their time in Pharaoh's house, who Sarah gave to Abraham to be his wife, according to Genesis 16.3, would bear Abram's first son, Ishmael. And his third wife, Keturah, later bore him six children. That's in Genesis 25, verses 1 through 4. So we are now looking at the forming of a diverse cultural family. Abram and Sarah, being from the area of ancient Babylon, will ultimately give birth to a son named Isaac. Abram and Hagar bring Egypt into the mix with their son Ishmael. And Abram and Keturah bring Midian into the mix, Saudi Arabia. Midian is where Moses dwelt after he fled Egypt. It is also where he found his wife Zipporah and gained a father-in-law, Jethro, in the Bible. So when we look at the Middle East today, I encourage you, take a step back and recognize that we are looking at family dynamics created centuries before. Even the Persian Jews we met in Israel when war broke out, they trace their lineage to Mordecai from the story of Esther. Every one of them are distant relatives. And there is no one better than God to deal with the sibling rivalry that stems all the way back to Cain and Abel. One thing is going to become very clear as the end of the age draws near is that God is committed to having a family from every people group, tribe, and nation. And in this covenant partnership with him, this global family will bring forth his purposes on earth as it is in heaven. But the only way it can do this is through his son, Jesus Christ, who unbelieving Jews have yet to see, and where the religion of Islam has blinded many of the descendants of Abraham's children to the point that in their religion, they refuse to call their God Allah, Father, and they say he has no need of a son. We'll pick back up there in our next episode. God bless you today. Music